Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Glad that you're here. Good morning and welcome. Lord, I, I hope that you came to worship the Lord. That's what we're going to do. We're also going to celebrate some things after church. We actually have quite a day. We're going to um, give Bibles to first graders. We're going to celebrate communion. We'll remember what Christ did for us. And we're also going to sing some songs. So we're going to um, honor the Lord, celebrate the Lord, and acknowledge His greatness and His status, His, His importance in our lives. So we're going to start with a song that's probably the one that's the most requested that I hear, and it's a favorite of a lot of people everywhere I go. And we usually have kids, so any kid, anybody of any age wants to come up here on the platform, we'd be happy to have you. And uh, we're going to uh, sing that song as a call to worship. Just before we do that, though, let's responsibly read some scripture. We've got Psalm 139. Kids can come up. If everybody would stand in honor of scripture and the Lord, let's read this responsibly. Follow the prompts on the screen. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You discern my going out. And my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in depth, you are there. You created my inmost being. And you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. So let's sing together. Everywhere I go on this road, high and low, where I go, I go. There's a city that calls me by name. Yes, as I run this race, I am cheered by the saints. There's a city that calls me by name. There's a future that runs through my veins. There's a future that runs through my veins. And there's nothing on earth that could stand in the way. There's a future.
have a seat. Thanks, kids. Good morning. It's a joy to have you here with us this morning. This is an exciting Sunday for us, not just because it's the first Sunday of football season. There's other reasons, too. Just an exciting Sunday. It's the Sunday we kind of kick off our kind of fall schedule, our fall activities with Sunday school and with a lot else going on. So just kind of to give you an overview of the plan for this morning. So we'll have our worship service now, and then following the worship service at at 10.30 downstairs, our our children and youth Sunday school will will kick off, we'll launch that, and then at about 10.45 up here in back in this room, I will have a kind of adult uh, kind of sermon Q&A time, you can ask questions, we're going to talk about not just today's sermon, but kind of all the whole series through Daniel as a whole, and kind of this idea of living as exiles that we've been talking about throughout this series. So we'll have that during the Sunday school hour. And then following that, we're going to have our our Harvest Fest, where we'll have plenty of food and activities, and there'll be a horse-drawn wagon that looks like the weather should kind of clear up for that. And unless the weather turns terrible, the horses will be here. So we encourage you to just, uh, yeah, be here for that. Come fellowship with us, enjoy time together, celebrate all that's done. As part of that, we will dedicate both the playground that was recently installed outside and the nursery downstairs that was recently remodeled. We just have a lot to celebrate, and we'd love to have you be a part of that with us. We encourage you to, to make time for that. Next Sunday, you'll get a a bit of a reprieve from hearing me preach um, because uh, Pastor Caleb from Vision of Hope Ministries in Haiti will be with us. He will preach. He will lead the sermon Q&A following the service and he'll just share like a lot about what's going on in, in Haiti, what they're doing there. He'll share God's word with you through that. There will also, as part of him being here, be two chances to have kind of meet and greet times with him. One on Friday night at Glenn and Julie Stelfer's home, and then one on Saturday night at Greg and Mary Jo Shanky's home. The details are in your bulletin if you're interested in those, but we'd love to have you connect with Pastor Caleb and hear about what they're doing at Vision of Hope and just support him in that way. If you're new or visiting with us, my name is Tim, by the way. I forgot to introduce myself, but I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're just glad that you're, you're here with us this morning. As I said, we're, we're excited about many of the things that are happening this morning to kind of kick off the school year. And one of those things that we kind of do to kick off the school year is present our first graders with Bibles so that they kind of head out into this new year. And so to do that, Pastor Ian is going to come um, and present those Bibles to our first graders. All right. Well, if you are a first grader, we would love for you to come up here and sit in one of these seats. Sorry, Pastor Tim. That's perfect timing. Perfect. All right. So if you guys want to take a seat here. All right. So we have... A 
Evelyn, here's yours. Ginny, yours. And James, yours. So, this is a Bible, right? Is the Bible just a book? No, it's not just a book. Look under each of your seats, okay? What's under your seat? Take a look. So, down here, guys. You can do this, James. You got this. All right, what's under your seat? What is that? You want to pull that out? All right. You guys can sit back down once you grab what's under your seat. Okay, so Ginny, what do you have? A cone. A cone. So what are cones used for? By the way, when we say cone, it's not like an ice cream cone. <laughs> All right. What are cones used for? What do you think? You put them in a line. Are they kind of a warning? trying to keep you away from hazardous things or dangerous things, right? The Bible can do that for you. What did you have under your seat, James? You want to say the water? Um, I had a water bottle. He had a water bottle. So, and is it an empty water bottle? It's a full water, has it been opened? What do you think? No, is it fresh water? Yeah, so in the Bible, life is described as a race, right? And when you're on a race, what do you need at the end of that race? Water, right? So the Bible is, can be a refreshment, and it can give you that, that, well, hydration so you can keep running. All right, Evelyn, what did you have under yours? Steak. You had a steak, and what are steaks used for? And when I say steak, I don't mean a meat steak, okay? <laughs> what are steaks used for? Keeping tents down. Keeping, it anchors tents down, right? So this Bible can be an anchor for you to God in your life that you are connected to him and that you don't get blown away by the hard things that happen in life, okay? So these are all Bibles that are given to you. The covers are made by Mrs. G, right? So if you guys get a chance and you see Mrs. G today, what you sh would you probably do? Probably should thank her, right? Yeah? Okay. Um, but we are excited for you to have these Bibles. These are yours to keep. And um, yeah, you guys did great. Can you guys give a, a round of applause for these guys? Well, as we continue in this time of worship, would you, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we thank you for those kids just now who received the Bible for their parents and family who desire to see them know and love your word for Sunday school teachers they've had and have now who will inspire them to love that word. Father, we pray for for each of us, but especially those kids, that our access to your word, our ability to read your word revealed to us would not be something we take for granted, that we would deeply love to read your word to us. That if we read your word, it would cause us to grow more deeply in love with you. As we read your word, we would see how deeply you love us, how deeply you care for us. 
how you sent Jesus to die for us, to forgive our sins when we had done nothing to deserve it. So, Father, as we gather together this morning, as we join together here in this place as a gathering of those who yearn to follow Jesus, would you be at work in our hearts and in our lives to draw us to yourself, to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. As we sing, as we hear your word, as we fellowship together, would all of those things, would they cause us to become more like Jesus, to have hearts more like the heart of Jesus, to love others more like Jesus loved us. Would we be amazed and stand in awe of your goodness and your love for us? Do we see more clearly what a great and mighty and powerful and awesome God you are this morning? And would that cause us to live lives that are obedient to you and are worshipful of you? Father, we acknowledge that there are those who come in this morning bearing heavy burdens, who are struggling, who are hurting. Father, we Pray for them. That in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their hurt, that you would give them a deep and abiding sense of your presence alongside them, that they would be comforted by a knowledge that no matter what they're going through, you are there with them. You have a good plan for it, even if we can't see it now. Father, for those who are here hurting this morning, would you comfort them? Would you give them peace? Would you provide healing to those who are in need of healing? Would you give reassurance to those who need to be reassured? Father, would you give us all vision of the coming day when you will return you will set all things right and there will be a new heaven and a new earth with no more pain no more suffering, no more death but until that day comes, God would you help us to live faithful obedient lives that bring you honor and glory praise in Jesus name Amen worship and we're going to do it through music so if you would stand with us let's sing together
Please be seated. Father, we praise you that what we just sang is true, that you are holy and you will always be holy. There is no change in you, but you are holy forever. You are forever worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. Thank you. We praise you for your holiness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like pretty much every generation has at least a couple movies that like define the childhood of the children of that generation. Like I don't know what those are for some of you, but for me, like one of those movies was like, The Sandlot. In fact, earlier this summer, I took our two oldest daughters to the theater here in town. They were showing The Sandlot, and it was like this deeply nostalgic moment for me to go and watch this movie. Another movie that kind of fit that category for me was Homeward Bound. The movie Homeward Bound, like I remember, like in our house as a kid, we had the Disney VHS, and Disney had to be all hoity-toity, and they couldn't just put their VHSs in the cardboard box, or they had to have that big plastic box that took up way too much room. But we had the big plastic box of Homer Bound and watched it frequently. And if you're not familiar with Homer Bound, A, shame on you, but, <laughs> but B, it's the story of these three pets. You can see them up there. Shadow is the golden retriever, Chance is the black and white dog, and Sassy is the cat. And they, they're trying to find their way home after, after getting lost. And they get lost because their family leaves them at the farm of a family friend when the family has to relocate. And, and these pets believe that there must have been some mistake until they decide to escape the farm and make their way home. And it's Shadow, the golden retriever, who decides to leave first. And he, he convinces chance and sassy that he should that they should come with him because as he says quote home is just over that mountain we'll be there before dark and so they're they're convinced and so they head out and they they climb this mountain that shadow says that home is right over and then they reach the peak of this mountain and they look out from the top of this mountain all they can see is more mountains and valleys and forests and more mountains and there's all far as the eye can see, there's no sign of home. And they realize that the journey home is going to be far longer and far more arduous than, than they expected. But they fall into this kind of classic trap, which is that when you look at a mountain range from kind of ground level, all you can see is kind of the mountains that are closest to you. Maybe a few of the taller mountains behind, but mostly all you can see is the mountains right in front of you, the ones that are closest. And it's only when you get to a kind of higher vantage point that you can begin to get a sense of how many mountains there really are, how big the mountain range is. And the higher you climb, the more you can see just how expansive the mountain range in front of you is. When you're at ground level, you can't see any of that. All you can see is what is right in front of you. 
And for this reason, mountains are often used in art classes to teach this, this technique, this concept called foreshortening. And foreshortening is this technique for drawing images that have a lot of depth on a 2D piece of paper. So this, this image, the next one up here, kind of shows that technique. Right? That, that as the arm comes up, the amount of space that the arm actually takes on the page or on the screen is shortened. Right? Hence the name, foreshortening. Right? So you take up less space as you draw the arm that's more vertical towards you. Right? But the obvious result of that is that the amount of detail you can see of the arm decreases as the arm comes up. Right? And, if, and if the fist was like all the way out, like pointing right into the camera, then you can almost see nothing of the arm. Right? Just as you can see almost nothing of the mountain range beyond the mountains that are in the foreground. Right? Or like think of like the sermon art for this series of the picture of a lion. Right? And that lion is, is coming right at you. Right? So you can't see any of the lion's body because it's coming right at you. That's foreshortening. And there's a similar phenomenon that happened with some of the Old Testament writers, especially the prophets. In fact, theologians have dubbed this term called prophetic foreshortening. And it's this idea that reading the Old Testament prophets can be confusing and can be challenging because often the prophets would write about one event that was going to happen like immediately, soon. And right after that, they would write about an event that was going to happen in the far distant future. But as you read them, there's no sense of gap between the two times. You couldn't get any sense of depth or how much time was between the two events they were writing about. It was prophetic for shortening. And that's led to a lot of confusion in how we read the Bible over the years, especially when it came to the coming of the Messiah, when it came to the coming of Jesus, it led to a lot of confusion. Because the prophets would often talk about the Messiah coming and establishing a kingdom and then passing judgment against God's enemies. And if you read the prophets, it all sounded like one big event that would happen all at one time. When you read the Old Testament prophets, it's easy to get the impression that the Messiah would come once and when he came, he would both establish a kingdom and bring a final new era of history into being. It all happened in one grand event. That's why at the very beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus rising from the dead, his disciples ask him, Lord, at this time, are you at this time, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To which Jesus replies, basically, not yet. And that was really confusing to the disciples of Jesus because they expected the Messiah, which they believed Jesus to be, to bring about the restoration of the kingdom in one grand fell swoop. So they were confused, like, why aren't you bringing the restoration of the kingdom, Jesus? But now, as we live here, 2,000 years after the coming of Jesus... And we have all the, the New Testament writings. We have, we have the advantage of having our view of the mountains raised up a little bit, as it were. We have a little bit higher vantage point to see more of the picture. And what's clear from our vantage point in history is that although Jesus came and kind of 
started to bring his kingdom. The world is still obviously sinful and broken and fallen. And so the perfect kingdom of God has not yet fully come. What is clear from our perspective, but that wasn't clear from the perspective of the prophets, that there's this large gap of time between the initial coming of the Messiah and the time he would establish his eternal kingdom. And as I said, that can make reading the Old Testament prophets challenging. When they talk about the end of the age and all these things, it's difficult to interpret. There's maybe no clearer example than all the Bible than Daniel chapters 7 through 12. And when I first started this series through the book of Daniel, I told you I was only going to preach chapters 1 through 6. Because chapters 1 through 6 are where all the kind of practicalities of living as exiles are seen. And then chapters 7 through 12 are all these visions that Daniel has that have to do with the future and the new age and the end of time. And because of prophetic foreshortening, it's all very confusing. There's all kinds of debate about what Daniel chapter 7 through 12 mean. As you read chapter 7 through 12, it, it's difficult to figure out what things Daniel is writing about will happen like soon after Daniel's writing and which things are still now, some 3,000 years later, waiting for a future fulfillment. And I frankly don't feel particularly qualified to preach on some of those things. I don't have a firm enough belief on some of those things. And more importantly, I think preaching on some of those things can create more speculation and confusion and division than it can love of Christ or life change. So it doesn't feel particularly beneficial to preach on some of those things. And I still believe that to be true. But as we kind of went along in the series, I felt wrong to not address any of it at all. So Daniel chapter 7 serves as kind of a bridge between the first half and the second half of the book. And so this morning we're going to walk through Daniel 7 as kind of the final sermon in our series through Daniel this morning. We're going to walk through this and see what we can learn about living as an exile from Daniel's vision of the future. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And then the rest of the chapter is just an explanation of that dream and an interpretation of it. I don't have the next verse on the screen, but you can just follow along and listen with me. So continuing in verse 2, Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings, the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked 
And there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victim and tr- victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And you just read that, and you think, well, you can see where the confusion comes in. Like what, and like our human inclination is to figure out like, okay, so what, what is each of these beasts? Like Daniel says, they're each four nations of the earth. So like which nation corresponds to which beast? And what does it mean that one's like a leopard and one's like a bear and one's like a lion? And what are the ribs and the mouth? Like what are all these things? Like we want to know all the details and figure out all this. But there's no consistent, clear, great answer. But what is clear is that this vision has a lot in common with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of a statue that's made out of four different metals that is eventually destroyed by a rock that would turn into a mountain. And when Daniel interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he tells him that each metal represents a different kingdom that would be powerful on the earth. And in this chapter, Daniel has this vision of four beasts that rise up out of the sea and, and control the earth for various amounts of time. And pretty much every scholar of the book of Daniel agrees that the four beasts that Daniel sees and the four metals in Nebuchadnezzar's dream represent the same thing. They represent four nations that would rise up to rule the earth at different times. But then Daniel came at this additional component. Because this fourth beast has these ten horns. And then suddenly in Daniel's vision, this new horn appears. And Daniel says that the horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And that's where this passage gets like really confusing. Because that's where this kind of foreshortening problem comes in. Because pretty much everyone agrees that the four beasts that Daniel sees represent Babylon and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Empires that, from our place in history, are now in the distant past. There's a lot of debate about this, the final horn. There's some who would say that this final horn is a person who existed around the time of the Roman Empire. And others who say it's a still future person, a still future figure. Some people would associate this horn with what we call the Antichrist. And I could spend this whole sermon walking through various theories. We could look at the pros and cons of each theory and in the end be no more like Jesus. That's like the last thing I want. I want to leave here looking more like Jesus, more in love with Jesus when we walked in. And so instead, I want to spend our time focusing on what Daniel says, comes after his vision of that horn. In verse 13, he says, 
in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with a cloud of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But Daniel has this vision of, of one like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days, that is God. And it's one like the son of man approaches God and he's given authority and glory and sovereign power and all the nations worship him. And this kingdom is one that will be an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. And for those Jews who are reading this in Daniel's time, this too would have been incredibly confusing. Because the term son of man was often simply used as a synonym for being human. God calls Ezekiel a son of man in the book of Ezekiel. It just means human often. And yet Daniel has this vision of one who is like a son of man, one who is human, being given things that only belong to God. There is this one who is human, who is like the son of man, who is given authority and glory. Only God deserves glory. He's given power. He's given worship. Only God deserves worship. He's being given an eternal reign over a kingdom. So for the monotheistic Jews who have this incredibly high view of God, who consider it blasphemy for anyone else to receive worship, this idea that there would be one like a son of man receiving worship and receiving glory and having authority would have been hard to process. So hard, in fact, that Daniel asked for interpretation. And the whole second half of of Daniel chapter 7 is an interpretation. Daniel says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached, approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I wanted to know about the ten horns that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast of the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it 
the ten-horned or ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppose his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. And again, that's all confusing and as an interpretation, not very helpful. But then here's the important piece. Verse 26. But the court will sit and if power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then, verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. So this morning, rather than focusing on all the details of these horns and these beasts, like, I thought I'd focus simply on that truth. Right? That his kingdom, the kingdom of this one like a son of man, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. My hope is not that you would leave here reading Daniel chapter 7 through 12 with like, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another hand trying to put pieces together. Like, that does no one any good. Instead, my hope this morning that you would leave here encouraged. Right? That no matter what the future holds, no matter how much of Daniel is still in the future and how much is in the past, no matter what the future looks like, no matter what it holds, no matter where we are in the timeline of history, like these verses are true. Throughout this series, you've been, been talking about what it looks like to live as an exile. To live in a culture that is hostile to the things of God. And sometimes it feels like we can be surprised that our earthly kingdom is hostile to God. But whatever these four beasts mean in Daniel, the one thing it should clearly mean is that we should not be surprised when earthly powers oppose God. And yet we should find hope that despite earthly powers opposing God, like the kingdom of God still advances and God still is at work to bring about his everlasting kingdom. So what I hope we see this morning is that living as an exile means means recognizing that the Son of Man, who we will see in a minute, is Jesus. We recognize the Son of Man as our present and future King. That this one like a Son of Man who comes is Jesus. And from where we are in history, He is now our present and our future King. In the stories about King Arthur and his knight to the round table and Merlin and all that, Arthur is often referred to as the once and future king. Because he he came for a time and he reigned as king in England and then he went away, but according to legend, he will one day return and reign as king again. He is the once and future king. But in Jesus, we have something even better. And Jesus, we we don't just have a once and future king, we have a present and future king. He is already king. He is already seated at the Father's right hand, reigning over creation even now. 
but a kingdom is not yet fully realized. The world and fortress of evil still battle for control over his kingdom. The beautiful thing about the Bible, that it promises us that there is coming a day when Jesus will return. He will bring about the completion of his kingdom. He is king in the present. He is king here and now. And there is coming a day when he will be seen more fully by everyone, by all people, as truly king. And we live in that in-between time. The time between his first coming, when he began to establish his kingdom, and his second coming, when he will bring his kingdom's perfect completion. The time that the theologians often refer to as the already and the not yet. But for Daniel, he wrote from this kind of foreshortened perspective. He couldn't see the time gap between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. But we, living where we do in history, we've had our perspective raised a little bit higher above the mountains. We can see more clearly where we fit in the grand scheme of God's plan for all eternity. And the most important thing that we can see, that Daniel and his Jewish readers couldn't see, is that it is this Jesus who is the one like a son of man. It is Jesus who comes and sits at the Father's right hand. It is Jesus who comes and receives glory and authority and power and worship. It is Jesus who has an everlasting kingdom. In fact, to make this clear, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself was as the Son of Man. It's the most commonly used way to refer to himself. It was a conscious fulfillment of these verses in Daniel chapter 7. Let's give you just one example that fits with this theme. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man who will sit on this glorious throne. So for all the things that we could take away from this passage, my hope, my heart, my desire is that like, we would see this. We see the promise in Daniel. We would understand that Jesus is that one like the Son of Man. And it would cause us to remember and live for King Jesus. That's the hope. That's the goal. That we would live lives that are committed to and serving of King Jesus. And we have this promise, right? That one day Jesus will return and we will inherit eternal life and he will usher in and renew all of creation. And it's our vision of that glorious future that gives us the ability and the endurance to face the challenges that come with living in this life. But if we're not careful, we can get so 
lost in longing for the not yet that we lose sight of the already. We become like proverbial children on a road trip asking, are we there yet? All the while not appreciating and enjoying all the the privileges that come with Jesus being our present king right here, right now. We can be so eager for the glorious future that we lose sight of the blessings that come with Jesus being our king in the present. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Brought us, past tense. We are in that kingdom now. We are already members of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is active and present wherever Jesus reigns as king. And one day that will be an external reality where everyone will see Jesus as king. But for now, here, it's an internal reality in the heart of all believers that Jesus reigns as king in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is where the kingdom of God exists. The kingdom of God is here now. Jesus said that the kingdom of God would grow like a mustard seed. That it would start almost imperceptibly small and then slowly grow. And we've seen that throughout history, right? It started in the, this small group of his followers. And it's been growing throughout history as more and more people come to know and love and follow Jesus. And all of us here who have trusted in Jesus are a product of that growth and that process. The kingdom of God is here now, reigning in the hearts of those who love and trust Jesus. Which means... That when we gather here on a Sunday morning, when we're gathered here right now, when we hear God's word together, when we take communion together, which we will do in a little bit, when we fellowship together, when we worship together, when we do all the things, what we're doing is something far greater than some mere social gathering. We gather here and now as ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. The author of Hebrews encourages us, consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good works. And do not give up meeting together. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. As we gather together, we do so to encourage one another to not give up as we see the day approaching. We see the end times coming when Jesus will return and make all things right. We are called to gather together and encourage one another. That's what we do here. Michael Horton says, corporate worship is a solemn assembly of God's embassy where he distributes gifts from the riches of his estate to which we are co-heirs with Christ. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are the princes and princesses of the everlasting empire. Right now, here in this room, as we gather here, we gather as those who follow and love Christ. We gather as princes and princesses of an everlasting empire. Look around you. 
These are your co-heirs with Christ. The, a gathering of, of God's embassy, of ambassador for Christ here on this earth. So we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be soldiers advancing the kingdom of God throughout this broken and fallen world. And as ambassadors, we're called to represent our king well. We're called to live like him. And not just look like him externally. We're called to, to have the heart of Jesus, to, to be like Jesus, not just in how he acts outwardly, but how he loves people. If Jesus is our king, we should seek to be like him, to love others the way he loved others, to serve others the way he served others. By the power of the Holy Spirit that He sent us when we believed in Him, He can change our heart so that we are no longer selfish and self-centered, but we are able to have the heart that He called us to have. We're able to, to live like King Jesus. As the ambassador, we're also called then to advance the kingdom. Each of us here who has trusted in Jesus is the product of someone faithfully living out the call to be an ambassador for Christ, to advance the kingdom. The kingdom of God exists within us, and we are called to invite others to come and be a part of that kingdom by trusting that Jesus died on our behalf for our sins. My hope as we leave here that we would each love King Jesus. That we would desire to advance the kingdom, not to check a list, check something off the list, but because we know what Jesus did for us. We would love Jesus. We would be obedient to Jesus. We would advance the kingdom of Jesus because we know that we were sinners. And yet Jesus came and he, he died for us when we had done nothing to deserve it. That he loved us enough to, to look at us in all our sin and all our failures and to say, I'll die for you. That's the kind of king that I want to serve. King that not not a king that exerts power unduly, but a king who comes and dies for me when I had done nothing to deserve it. So we're about to take communion together. And it's a reminder that we serve and follow and worship that kind of king. And as we prepare our heart for worship, I just want to play a short video that's kind of set the stage a little more of what we're doing as we take communion. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. 
Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Yeah, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, 
having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. When we, the moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. The danger, the fear is always that as we take the Lord's Supper, it's always something we do because we have always done it as we come to church. It's always something we do just as a, as a ritual, as a, a thing we do kind of without thinking. And my hope is that as we, we take the bread, we take the blood, we, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. That Jesus' blood was spilled for us. And despite the fact that he is the king over all creation, he came and he suffered those things on our behalf. make a way for us to have our sins forgiven, to be made pure, to be made right before God. I pray and I hope that you come and you take the communion elements, those thoughts will be on your mind and you'll be moved to worship and to being in awe of all that Jesus did for you. Here's how we take communion here. As you, in just a moment, I invite you to come forward come up this two side aisles. There's bread and juice in the, the trays. There are gluten-free elements in the wicker baskets if you'd prefer that. I want you to come forward, then grab the elements, return to your seat, and then when everyone has the elements, we will partake together. If it's easier for you to stay in your seat, you can raise your hand. We can bring the elements to you. Pastor Ian will be around with some elements he can bring to you. So as we prepare for this time, would you join me in time of prayer? Father God, we thank you. We praise you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. 
Jesus, you are the Son of Man who is worthy of glory and power and honor and all our worship. You came and you lived among us. You were like us in every way, yet without sin. You died for us. But now as we come, would we remember all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, you may come forward, grab the element, return to your seat, and we will partake together in just a moment. Please join us as we sing together a song that you probably all know that celebrates this atoning sacrifice. Please come forward. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I
Jesus on, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, we thank you for the chance to remember. We pray to you that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is so worth remembering. Would we not take it for granted? Would we not take it lightly? Would we constantly rejoice in what you've done for us in Christ? And would it move us to live lives that are obedient and faithful and desire to advance your kingdom? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I forgot to mention earlier during announcements is that on Sundays when we take the Lord's Supper together, we take a special benevolence offering, which we use to meet needs in our community and our church family. So on your way out at the door, there'll be people holding trays. Giving to that benevolence offering can go in those trays that are being held. Regular tithes and offering can go in the wooden boxes on the back wall. Again, I hope you stick around after the service. You can head downstairs. There'll be coffee and treats and it's time to hang out together and then Children's Sunday School will start around 10.30. And then up here at 10.45, we will meet back in here for the Q&A and discussion about the book of Daniel up to this point. We're thankful that you're here with us. We're glad that you're here with us. We hope you stick around as well for the, the harvest party after.
the Sunday school hour and just enjoy that time of fellowship together. But as you go, would you go remembering that Jesus is your present and your future king. You are dismissed.